Did you guys just get rid of 25,000 people off the Medicaid roll? I mean, why did they lose Medicaid? They decided that they weren't deserving and they voluntarily resigned so that they could they could <laughs> they could buy they could buy their own policies. <laughs> freedom. Um, freedom, freedom, choice. Welcome to Twill, the week in health law. The Chips Refunded podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on February the 5th, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host who, when Trump turned it down, borrowed that solid gold toilet from the Guggenheim and is... <laughs> Frank Pasquale, a huge fan of Maurizio Catalan. <laughs> <laughs> well, Frank, this uh, week, a, uh, a great welcome to uh, a new guest, Dr. Carl Ameringer, Professor of Health Policy and Politics at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. A lawyer with a PhD in political science, he's an expert on issues surrounding our national debate about healthcare reform. During the course of his 20 plus years in the health policy arena, he's advised governors, state legislatures, and state agencies on issues ranging from universal health care to emergency department violence. From 1987 to 1992, he served the state of Maryland as assistant attorney general and deputy counsel to the Maryland Health Department. His latest book and the subject of our conversation today is U.S. Health Policy and Healthcare Delivery. Doctors, Reformers, and Entrepreneurs. It is about to be published by Cambridge University Press. So uh, click on that order soon uh, button on Amazon. We'll put some links in the show notes. Welcome to the pod, Carl. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your having me on, both you and Frank. This is very nice. Well, most of us grew up with Kizik's Iron Triangle, and you don't ignore it. It's right there on page one of your book. But the first thing I suppose I noticed as I read through through that first uh, introductory chapter is the frame of your book is uh, the focus on the interplay between healthcare delivery and healthcare financing. And as I understand it, you argue that policymakers have over-concentrated on financing and under-concentrated on healthcare delivery, a sentiment I think our friend Bill Sage would approve of. Is is that basically the approach, the take that you have on this? Yes, it is. I, I'm trying to make the point that delivery matters. And that, in fact, we have spent an awful lot of time talking about finance and neglecting delivery, which other countries have not done. And that's very much the point of the first chapter is to just kind of lay out the fact that in other countries, they look at the two together. They have to synchronize to an extent or to a great extent to achieve the kinds of things that are the goals that most countries want to achieve, which is to increase access and contain costs and improve quality. And I just wanted to give a really concrete example of that synchronization from your book, which I thought was so illuminating on this and many other fronts. You mentioned that in terms of graduate medical education, you know, there's this very big divide, right, where you have a lot of systems that have more coordination and they can uh, put a cap on the number of specialists or at least try to uh, develop a certain number of specialists to meet the healthcare system's need. Whereas in the U.S., because we privatize the funding of the education, people are taking out big loans and then they want to flock to whatever is the most lucrative specialty. Could you describe that comparison and what it illuminates about American health care policy and our dilemmas? Well, boy, that's um, hard to know where to start on that one because it, it is so much a part of, of this country and the way it approaches a number of problems. And so the book where it starts is 1870. 
which is when we are really starting to make some progress, or at least European countries are, in terms of science-based medicine. And so the, the story is one of increasing specialization. And as you go, as you proceed along that path, you can understand why more students would be going into specialty practice particularly if they're having to finance their own education and are then able to incur, make more money when they get out and pay off bills that they've accumulated throughout their educational time in, in the medical schools. So if is that where you're, is that what you're asking, Frank? Yeah, I mean, I think it was just, it was of interest to me because I think that with the U.S., the Council on Graduate Medical Education, you know, in terms of its influence and others have put forward proposals that would involve, you know, trying to, or the, their proposals and some actual legislation involves trying to nudge people toward, say, rural medical practice or perhaps there's other nudges in the direction of primary care. But it just seemed like the there's a more dirigiste approach, you know, in, in France and Germany and other places. And I just wanted to mark that out as an initial point of comparison, sort of beginning just even before doctors go into practice, how forward-looking some systems are and how sort of chaotic our system is uh, prone to become. Well, but again, that has to be looked at in the entire context. And I guess that's kind of where I'm coming from in that if you just look at it separately uh, in each country as, you know, well, we're going to limit the number of medical students, number one, we're going to limit the number of students who are going into specialty practice, number two, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. It, it, it's not that it's not that simple, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. In other words, there's a there's a whole infrastructure around healthcare delivery that's been developed in those countries over a you know long period of time that is a major factor there. And so again, it's just not simply the country is 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 pursuing policies to do that. There's a whole history here that involves the way the medical profession has in each of these countries has evolved as well, so that it it becomes very difficult at the, at at our point in history here to do what Cogni, you know, to suddenly say, oh, we're going to have a 50-50 rule or a 50-50 recommendation. That is 50% generalists and 50% specialists. After you've got this whole infrastructure built up, which is very much oriented towards specialization. So to, to simply come in with policies or even nudge you in that direction is um, going to cut very much against the flow, not only of, of the profession itself, Itself, but it, but also against the way the market in healthcare works in this country. So th- that's what I'm talking about with this synchronicity over time. Um, so that if you're going to correct the situation, you've you can't approach it the way other countries have done in, in this country is what I'm is what I would have to say. And I think that's something we can talk about or go into. I was reminded of Atul Gawande's Cowboys Against Pit Gurus argument as I was reading through that. You talk about an emphasis on primary care. And I think that flows from the the generalist as opposed to the specialist kind of argument that uh, you just were commenting on. How sure are we that better emphasizing primary care will reduce costs? Aaron Carroll had a nice upshot column in the Times last week looking at the evidence on primary care and came to the conclusion 
conclusion that most of the studies suggest that some preventative services were cost effective, but most of the reasons for moving to more primary care, more preventative care, had to do with improving quality, not really reducing spending. When you're talking about... (laughs) Okay, quality as opposed to spending. First of all, let's address the spending issue. One of the problems I have with the notion that we can create universal coverage simply through finance alone is that we are not asking the hard questions which other countries do, which is what are we talking about when we say access to health care? Are we saying everything or are we saying access to basic services and what are those basic services? Um, And that's something that other countries have had to deal with over a lengthy period of time. And it's it's that notion of basic services, which I think gets you into uh, primary care and um, cost containment. When it comes to quality, I think there's some confusion in the use of that of that term. Quality in the U.S. is is often related to the quality of the particular service provided. So, for instance, gee, I go to the best specialist in the world at you know Johns Hopkins or someplace like that. Well, we have very high quality, and we have we don't have to go to Johns Hopkins. We can go to many you know reputable hospitals in the area, and we're going to get some pretty high quality in terms of a specific type of service or a specific procedure. But that's not the way it's measured necessarily on a world on a world scale. World Health Organizations or OECD or any of the others, they're looking at quality of a nation's health. They're looking at population health. And when it comes to population health, primary care is extremely important, I would argue, because it delves into the management of care of populations over a broad spectrum. And and we are going down compared to other countries in the areas of life expectancy and infant mortality. We made great progress in the post-World War II period, but as chronic diseases have increased, um, the management of those diseases has become important. So there's a lot of distinctions to be made here, and I, I guess the final distinction I'm making here is between acute and chronic care. And we tend to, to measure quality in terms of acute care. And I think that those that are looking at primary care in other countries are thinking along the lines of, of chronic care delivery. And needless to say, I think a lot of these health systems that have moved forward in the past uh, several years have been have recognized that. And so even though they may not be seen, and I know there are, the pilot studies are not necessarily showing that there are any advantages of of a significant nature, certainly over the short term when it comes to uh, costs. Nonetheless, you don't know what that is over the long term, which is what's been happening in other countries. And in addition, with the increase in chronic care and chronic care delivery, you've got to factor that in as well. Oh, that's so interesting. So I thought one of the most damning paragraphs of the book early on was uh, your description of the abject failure of the US government to construct a national health policy. Instead, it sort of uh, devolves into private entities and individuals, uh, corporate boards, corporate managers, you say, stakeholders operating largely outside government control. You also make the interesting observation that U.S. courts have been important players in fashioning health policy. 
does one sort of flow from the other? Is your position that that maybe the courts have sort of flowed into the vacuum left by uh, other branches of government in failing to establish health policy, necessitating courts coming in to deal with um, uh, the interests of uh, private parties? Not necessarily. I am approaching it in terms of the courts as who's bringing the, who's bringing the cases, who's pursuing the lawsuits. I'm not talking about tort cases, medical malpractice, that sort of thing in this book. I'm looking at it from the perspective of uh, government going to the courts or, or through the administrative process, uh, as in the case of the Federal Trade Commission, um, pursuing policies which are difficult to achieve through uh, legislative means. And the best example of that would be the group health case that is at the middle the middle chapter in the book, which I think brings together a number of different facets here. It brings the profession, the um, notion of of market and market competition and government, and it kind of packages it all into one. And it's the first time that the government really intervenes uh, in a big way in the healthcare industry in a, in a, in a way to try to fashion what it wants. And that's seen in the statements that are issued by Thurman Arnold, who was um, Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt's head of the antitrust department at the Department of Justice. And so Arnold has a vision of the healthcare system, healthcare industry, which is one that persists in the federal government, not only from the 1930s, but I would say until this day. And that's one of the threads that I try to discuss throughout. And that is that the government, and certainly those you know, in, in, the, in the bureaucracy, many of these agencies favor multi-specialty group practice, the gold standard being Kaiser Permanente. Um, not only is Arnold pursuing that, of course it's before Kaiser Permanente, but he's pursuing it as his statements indicate, but so are those who fashioned the HMO Act, Paul Elward, uh, to Enthoven, to a number of others that Clinton administration with 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 their health plan all are all have this image and and workforce policy as well all have this image of uh, prepaid multi-specialty practice as being a, a very good way to organize healthcare delivery but they're nudging it along after putting things into play through Medicare and Medicaid through prospective payment system that is you know DRGs and, and the cost containment of hospital costs and through the HMO Act of 1973, they're, they're putting these things into play, but they're just kind of nudging it along in this particular direction. And what's really interesting is when you when you read some of the things that, that these folks are saying, it's that they assume that the industry is going to become more rational, that it's, it's, it's going to rationalize along the lines as I've described and other countries have as I described really at the beginning, in terms of primary care, secondary care, tertiary care, this spectrum that is both based on enhanced specialization as well as um, geography and the use of primary care physicians um, as gatekeepers and as uh, first contact care. And again, this is something that you're seeing in other countries and what they're trying to do is to is to package it in terms of multi-specialty group practice. Well, <laughs> 
the, the, the story of the 90s is that that didn't happen. It didn't happen as they, as they anticipated. And the backlash in the mid-1990s really changes the whole thing. And we get all this consumer protection legislation at the end of the 90s. And voila, we have, we have PPOs. We have preferred provider organizations, loosely integrated systems. And we're back in many respects to square one when it comes to principles of free choice of physician and fee-for-service payment, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I hope that's answering your question, but that's, that's, that's my take on the whole thing. Yes. And, you know, going through the chapters, you know, and you have this very interesting periodization, you know, where you have uh, up to 96, and then there's a chapter on 96 to 2015 in terms of the uh, emergence of corporate health systems. And I think that's, you know, one of many strengths of the book is sort of telling the story and uh, periodizing it in the way that you do. Now, one question I have, though, just to step a, a, a bit back from the history, but I'm, I'm sure we're going to dive back into that, but to get into sort of the overarching normative framework for the book or policy desideratum is on the one hand, you do advocate for, or you see you, the book does note the merits of integrated delivery systems and of ways of organizing healthcare that would be more cost effective and would improve quality. One thing that someone who say defends the principle uh, principle of free choice a physician might say is, well, isn't the best way for physicians to compete to be not that necessarily that they're trying to get into a certain integrated delivery system or, or practice, but rather to let everybody have access to any of the physicians that they want and let consumers choose, right? This would be sort of a consumer choice uh, framework um, or one version of a consumer choice framework. And I know that, you know, this may be taking us back a few steps, but if you could explain why you doubt that that works, that you know, giving people the right of free choice of position of physician. Um, why doesn't that work to actually improve quality or to lead doctors to uh, compete in a better way? First of all, and I and I don't say it. I hesitate to say that it make a blanket statement that it doesn't work. Maybe I should just start out with I find it very um, interesting when I when I teach a class that has young students in it that are both American and Canadian. And I've had I've had some of that. And the American students will often say, well, gee, why should I even have a primary care physician? I just go to the specialist. And so, in effect, you're self-diagnosing. On the other hand, then we have um, the Canadian students, and they're looking at them like they're nuts. And it, it really is a, is a funny reaction. Well, what do you mean you do that? And, you know, I, I do think that, you know, in terms of, of just anyone out there who, oh, I I've got this particular problem with my knee. Well, gee, do I really need to see a primary care physician? No, I'm going to go to an orthopedist and that orthopedist is going to start me on this and that, and that's and that's going to be the way the condition is treated. One of the problems with that, of course, is not in that discrete instance, but in instances where where most of the costs are in our system, and, and that is among people that are 50 years of age or 55, 60, 65 years of age and older, 65 and older, really, where there are a number of comorbidities. It isn't just simply one particular problem um, that a particular specialist treats. And so if you look at it from the standpoint of, well, gee, I can go to this person for this and I can go to that person for that, where's the coordination? There's, you know, there really is tremendous fragmentation of care. Somebody should be, or some team or group of people should be coordinating that for that particular individual. And again, that's where a lot of the money is. I think it's somewhere around 70% 
of, of our healthcare dollars um, go to, um, at least maybe it's Medicare dollars, go to that particular group of people with these comorbidities. So I, I, I think that there's a lot to be said for having first contact care. That is that somebody um, has a designated primary care physician and that that physician um, then can make a referral uh, or at least give you some advice as to where to go with things. Um, now, obviously, that's not an emergency situation. I'm not talking about a situation, well, I've got this particular problem and I need you know, to go to the emergency room. But for purposes of, of just having some coordination of care and some sort of flow through the system, it seems it, it, it makes sense that you, would, that you would do it in that way. Now, to, to may more clearly answer your question, Frank, and I do have some problem, I, I understand where you're coming from. I do think that we have to think about who is best able to nav- navigate the system. And in some respects, your position, I think, suggests that the person who can make those decisions is a sophisticated consumer that knows how to uh, navigate the system. And I don't really think that that is the case for a lot of folks. And particularly certain populations, which for a variety of reasons uh, may find this whole situation very confusing and complex. I think it bears mentioning that we have, you know, we are in the process now of something that is similar to what occurred in the late um, 19th century, and that is um, substantial wave of immigrations of, immig- of of immigrants, and a lot of those folks, and I've talked to them in their communities, uh, Latino communities in South Omaha and South Richmond in particular, and those individuals want uh, good primary care and have asked for it, and it's hard for them to navigate our system the way it is. Was the sort of the zenith of the vertically integrated model that those folks were pushing for that came around 1996 the the uh, the beginning year of your your final piece in in this chronology and that's really around the time when ordinary people started objecting profoundly to managed care organizations managing their care and you started getting a, a, a real pushback against that. Has that really continued to a much more decentralized kind of model, less prescriptive by the providers? Um, you know, obviously there'll, there'll be little blips like Don Berwick's ACOs coming up into the Affordable Care Act and stuff like that. But was that the, the, the sort of the zenith of that type? And if so, where have we moved from 96 to to around now. Do you mean staff model and group model HMOs? Yes. Yes. I, I, I think it would have been earlier than that, frankly, that more probably early 1990s is, was the zenith. And truth be told, I'm not, I'm not sure that the staff model HMO, which I belonged to at one point, I thought it was kind of neat, never really, really took hold. Um, I mean, you know, it really took a lot to get things, to get things moving and managed care itself doesn't catch hold until the, the late 1980s. And then you go through these various iterations until you get to most people over the course of the 90s are moving from tightly managed care to more loosely integrated systems. And today, or at least in the early 2000s, we have moved, and I, and I don't know, like, want to characterize it in terms of of integration. 
well, in terms of an ideal model. I think where we've gone is in the direction of these hospital-based systems. And these hospital-based systems have pretty much, depending upon their particular environment, chosen what direction to take, whether they're going to team up with other hospitals horizontally or whether they're going to, you know, get a particular group of physicians um, together and attach them, whether they're going to pursue particular specialty lines. I think that what, what is driving things and in, in, in the 2000s is a business model. Um, and that business model, I think, works for, for some and has, in many respects, fostered quality and cost containment and, and a variety of innovative forms, the chronic care model being one of them, team-based care, patient-centeredness. And so I certainly think that the fact that the market can respond or has been responding to some of these things vertically and horizontally is 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 very good but it is we have to recognize that it is a business the main focus is one on on profit making on market share on risk reduction and that and that for instance is it's what's happened with these specialty lines through the combination of current procedural terminology which you know looks at things discreetly in terms of a particular procedure there are certain specialists such a cardiologist and orthopedists and ophthalmologists that can do things, procedures, certain procedures over and over again, stents, cataract surgery, hip and knee replacements. And this volume-based strategy is one that um, many of these hospital-based systems have been pursuing. And I'm not saying that that's bad. Um, I think that's all part of, of, of a market, of a market model. And I think, again, that it works for some, but it doesn't work for all. The problem with it is that it leaves a large segment of the population behind. These systems, in order to increase market share, they're not going to do it in areas where uh, people don't have, where there are large numbers of people with comprehensive health insurance. And so it's not simply a matter of no insurance. It's a matter of finding people that have comprehensive health insurance. And, and so it's an ever-escalating process uh, in terms of costs and, and volume of services. And, and, and we all know that there's a tremendous waste in the system as well because of because of what's going on as much as a third of healthcare costs are due to waste uh, it has been argued in the literature so I'm not saying that this direction is one that is bad I think it I think it's great to have innovation in in the market but I think that we have to consider well what's happening for upwards of a third of our population and and, and that is really very much where I'm headed at the end of the book and in terms of the research that I'm doing now that's great and that leads to our wrap-up big question and I guess uh, borrowing from my friend Dave Levine of the Hearsay Culture Podcast, this is the unfair question because it's just too big to, you know, <laughs> answer in one response. But I've got to ask it and just, uh, again, to put us in the direction of your future research, uh, this might be helpful. 
It seems like in your last couple of chapters, um, there is concern about the problems of managed competition in the 90s, early 2000s. And of course, we're all watching the news. We're all watching um, the Affordable Care Act essentially look like the protagonist of the old man in the sea. I don't know if people know this Hemingway story, but the the old man catches a great fish, but as he tries to take it into land, um, it's gradually consumed by uh, sharks and uh, moray eels and all sorts of other sea creatures until finally there's just a skeleton and nothing left. And one has the sense that the failures of um, uh, the current administration's health policy with respect to maintaining the ACA and you know state uh, failures or state problems in terms of administrative capacity are going to make it very difficult for versions of match competition to succeed. But your book ends with a certain level of uh, optimism, uh, very guarded optimism, about accountable care organizations. And so I guess what I'm looking for is just if you could let our listeners know, Carl, like, do you have guarded optimism overall about the U.S. healthcare system, or is it really just in sort of particular programs like the ACO, where you see glimmers of hope of a more rational and cost-effective system? Um, Well, let me start with ACOs, and I do mention them as an interesting um, idea, uh, which calls for a particular kind of design um, that the federal government says, if you pursue this particular kind of design, that is you in the private sector, um, and you save money by doing this below a, a base rate, then um, whatever you save, you can you can keep. And again, I think that does. I think that's great for for some, but not for others. An example I would use is of a ACO in in Omaha, where I interviewed, talked to the person in charge. It was a pharmacist, and he had brought a whole bunch of cardiologists around him and his his thing had to do with the, dis- the dispensing of prescriptions and management of of heart conditions and his particular approach was he felt uh, a good one in terms of consumers or the patients involved and in addition he was making a fair amount of money doing it but i said to him i said now this is all well and good and you're here in in and you know you're, you're here in the area of the city which is pretty well off and you indicate that you want to have another site and he, that's what he said I'd like to have another site well I looked at him and I said well are you going to put that site in would you put that site in North Omaha which is primarily African-American would you put it in South Omaha which is primarily Latino and he looked at me as if I was nuts and that I th- and that and that's that's the problem now so I think that ACOs is an idea which is a, which is which is good and I like to see government uh, fostering those kinds of ideas what what is the the big step, however, and this is where I'm where I'm really heading for. When I make, uh, when I stay at the end of the book, why are we looking at community health centers as safety net providers? Why are we calling these things safety net providers? And this is what we've done historically, and yet this these community health centers are in many respects multi-specialty group practices that are in particular communities where there is a fair amount of need and they work and the literature says they work but we've never gone in this into this with full conviction 
interestingly enough, and this is what I'm looking at now, is the whole health center movement starts in the 1920s. And then the neighborhood health centers, it, it, it takes a, a huge lull in the middle of, of the 20th century. It then appears again in the 1960s under the Kennedy and Johnson administrations in, in terms of neighborhood health centers. And we see it with FQHCs, federally qualified health centers, today. However, there is a substantial need out there that is not being met, not by them. And as a result, you're seeing free clinics appear in many areas of the country, particularly here in Virginia. There's a very large free clinic system. Well, these free clinics um, are not uh, under federal regulation. They don't receive federal grants. But they're very similar to what was happening back in the 1920s with these different varieties of health centers during a period of large uh, immigration and, and, and stress. Uh, where, you know, people couldn't find health care, middle classes, the middle class, as well as the lower classes. And so that's really where, where I'm going. I'm, I'm having, I have trouble with the notion, the overall notion that we are continuing to build on an outdated model. And that model is Medicaid in that we're saying that let's continue to um, finance a delivery system which uh, doesn't meet the needs, the needs of everyone. Now, again, I don't have a problem with, with, with the private sector financing that delivery system, with private insurers doing it at all. I'm just simply saying that, you know, why are we pouring Medicaid dollars into a delivery system, which I would argue doesn't meet the needs of, of that particular population. And that was the Week in Health Law. Big thank you to Dr. Abringer for joining us. Thank you so much, Carl. Fascinating book. Uh, we'll make sure uh, we put some uh, information about it in our show notes, which will be at twill.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, again, thank you very much. I th- this was a very interesting discussion. I really appreciate it. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And by the way, if you're one of the three million Twitter followers I purchased, please retweet. And Frank, where can you be reached this week? <laughs> bots or real people are welcome at Frank Pasquale or at Health PI. I thought you only had bots. <laughs> Actually, I got audited last week on Twitter audit, and it's only 5% bots. So I'm feeling very chuffed about that. Oh, awesome. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> they took 5% away from me, I'd only have four left. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.